Welcome back to the Music History Project. Today we're doing part one of a two-part series showcasing different aspects of gospel music. Welcome to the Music History Project. We are your hosts. I'm Dan Del Fiorentino. I am Suzanne Del Fiorentino. And I'm Alex Rossner. All of the content of our podcast is based on the Oral History Collection, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. This collection is over 5,000 interviews and growing. To learn more, check it out on nam.org library. Welcome back to the Music History Project, everybody. This is an exciting episode for a couple of reasons. One, all throughout my time uh, at NAM here recording interviews for our oral history program, I can't tell you how many people said they started out their careers in music in the church, going to church or singing gospel music growing up. So it's really important that we uh, take a moment to um, highlight some of the important people in gospel music that we've recorded over the years. The second reason this is an exciting podcast is the team assembled here in front of me, Alex Rosner. Hi. And Suzanne Del Fiorentino. Hey. And my son, Jonah, is joining us for a couple of podcasts this summer. Hey, Jonah. Hello. Hey, we're so glad that you are here. Um, it's really cool that uh, Jonah actually did some of the pre-production of the next couple of episodes that we're going to be hearing. So Jonah, as we start off with gospel music today, talking about different aspects, especially during the era of contemporary worship gospel music, I think it's really important to hear how some of these songs and some of these styles developed. So who are some of the folks we're going to be hearing from today? So today we're going to talk about Bob Waters, Kurt Kaiser, and Karen Lafferty, and they kind of all worked in different aspects of gospel music. So I feel like at least preparing for today, I learned so much about the different aspects of um, older gospel music as well as newer. So yeah. And so I think around the early 1970s, there was a, a movement um, mostly credited to a record label called Maranatha that introduced what we now refer to as contemporary Christian music or contemporary worship music. And all three of the folks you just mentioned actually have written songs that are really uh, very, very important for the beginning of the popularity of this movement. So I think it's uh, very wise that we start off with uh, the older of the, the folks, the guy who kind of bridged the gap between hymns that we sang with those great hymnals like Amazing Grace and things like that, to worship songs that had much more focus on the lyrics as opposed to the music. So we'll see that transition with Mr. Waters. So Jonah, up first is Bob Waters. Tell us a little bit about what we're going to be hearing him talk about. So Bob Waters, um, throughout his life, traveled um, in a specific group called the Traveling Evangelist, but also he, throughout his life, he traveled even um, just like in Poland and so many different experiences. And so... Um, we're going to um, include a few snippets of his interview that showcase some of the things that he thought were really essential in his traveling, such as in Poland, but also um, he talks about um, his experience in connection with the organ and a few songs that he wrote as well. Awesome. So let's go back to March 2021 
and the interview with Bob Waters. For those of us uh, people listening who may not know, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about um, the tent shows you were talking about in the traveling evangelist. What was that? Oh, like? oh well, let me see. In those days, everybody had evangelistic crusades. Uh, there were many traveling groups, mostly all musical. I mean, they had music. And that's why they would, I'd come through and I, they would come through my town and I'd play the piano for the service or I'd sing a solo. And so then they would ask my folks and the pastor, can he travel with us this summer, our family? So that's how it started. And I was at age 12 and I started traveling until I was 18. Then I started traveling alone at 19. <laughs> wow. So you became, that, you, you, so you began um, as a musician, but then switched over to also preaching? Oh yes, uh, well, they, I was I was handed six months of meetings one night, and, and I had only preached one sermon when I was fifteen, and now I'm nineteen, and so I didn't have any better sense to say okay, and so that's how I was launched. And uh, all, uh, with with me was Bob Daniels. Now he sang many years on Oral Roberts' uh, big television show at the time. It had the largest audience of any religious uh, telecast, and or and Bob sang for him for eight years. And, uh, and then that was after we, after I got married and we parted ways, but, and so, and pa Bob passed away in 2018. So and I'm still here. He was a year younger than me. And that's, we started together. And then he, he, he became a RCA Victor recording artist. He was second only to Bev Shea in those days with gospel re recordings and with Oral Roberts and all. So that's how, that's how we got started. They, we were offered a six months of meetings starting tomorrow night. And I, I, I have you familiar with Christian book distributors, CBD, it's the largest. I well, sure that was started by the, Stephen, the, I think the third son. I started at Central Bible College, and my brother-in-law was teaching him, uh, you know, one of his uh, students, and he got with two kids in their in their dorm room at CBC here in Springfield and started CBD there. And then when he graduated, he went home and, and went into their basement, and these two boys still stayed with him and helped, and then they rented a, a, a building across the street. So tell me a little bit about the publishing company. Did you work with them? Well, I wrote songs, but I, yeah, and 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 I, I was published by the Gossip Publishing House, the Assemblies of God, and uh, then a number of artists. We wrote uh, the, the original "Jesus is the Answer." Then years later, Crouch wrote another one with the same title, but a different song. But if so, we wrote many songs. One was called "I Can't Get Along Without the Lord," and it was recorded by about twenty-five groups, and uh, so. We, Lily and I, we wrote a few gospel songs. We, we were no Bill Gaither, but <laughs> we wrote a few. And, and then I just, and I just kept on, I lost her and I just kept traveling. And, but I had asked to become a missionary in 1967 by the missions department of the Assemblies of God. And uh, so I went, I've been in 40 countries and a thousand cities around the world in auditoriums. And for the first few years, way back, large tent meetings, circumstance things. So, so we had, a, it's been an interesting life. <laughs> oh, it sure sounds like it. So Bob, I wonder if you could tell us the story behind writing the song, I Can't Get Along Without the Lord. How did that come about? Well, uh, we were talking one day and he said somebody, I sure would not want to go through life 
without the, the, the Lord helping us and everything. And so we got to kick it around and said, well, let's, so we sat down and wrote the song and uh, it became uh, it became a major one with a gospel publishing house. And as I say, with many groups that recorded it. And he says, oh, I could get along without riches and I could get along without fame. I could get along without having my share of worldly gain, in, but I can't get along without the Lord. And so that, <laughs> Uh, and it, of course, the Lord is right beside me. He'll guide me all the way through the valley, deeper on the mountain steep. He hears me. When I pray, oh, yes, I've learned that there's only one way to get along. Oh, I can't get along without the Lord. <laughs> I haven't thought of that. It's a wonder I remember it all the way through. <laughs> and the second verse starts out interesting. When days are long and nights are all dreary and trouble troubles me. <laughs> When burden get a little bit heavy, no sunlight I can see. I have a friend who's six like a brother. I find him in God's word. Oh, I can't get along without the Lord. <laughs> so, and a lot of people seem to like it. So and another one, Jesus is the answer. We were living in California. We had an old back with upright we found used. And uh, so I was playing it. And my, I have say to my wife, you mean to help you there? No, no, you play the piano. So I'd go play the piano while she cooked supper, did dishes. And one night she was cooking and I was playing something. And she said, what's that you're playing? I said, oh, I don't just diddly. I'm just, she said, keep playing it. I'm getting a song. And so I kept playing the melody, whatever I thought of. And she came out from the kitchen with a, a paper napkin with words written on it, props it up on the, old piano and said see if they fit and they did and that was the birth of jesus is the answer he's all that i need now that was the number one uh hit whatever you want to call it on moody bible institute radio when they reached all of wisconsin illinois and indiana part of and so they had this huge uh movie moody bible radio and they took a survey of the most popular song revival time choir recorded jesus is the answer and for three years in a row that was the most requested song on moody bible all across mid america and that's where jordan beverly shea first began to sing on moody and uh, so anyway that a few interesting things Boy, and that's how that started on a paper napkin <laughs> <laughs> That is fantastic. How interesting. Well, yeah, it's never a dull moment. <laughs> I'll say. I wonder if you, you know, I never got to meet Bob Daniels. What sort of guy was he? Oh, he was a wonderful young man and uh, with the most glorious voice. You can hear him uh, on YouTube, I understand. I, I don't know much about that, but the French said they listened to Bob. And he had, I think, the most wonderful voice I have ever heard. I, it was it was low. It was melodious. It was uh, full of uh, I don't know. It was it, not not a bursting song, you know, not operatic, but so such a marvelous quality and of course perfect pitch always. And uh, which I can I have perfect pitch. I can tune an orchestra, but I can't stay on tune with my voice. <laughs> so that's different. But if he he sang perfect pitch. And we and, and and I remember we was, we were first starting and we listened to radio a lot. We had we were had a lot of time in little rooms wherever we were holding tent meetings and auditorium meetings and so on. Just a couple of kids. He was nineteen. I was twenty, and uh, he would he would listen to a, a, a black singer. I forget the name, but wonderful, beautiful 
voice and he would imitate him. So uh, one day we were practicing For All My Sin was the name of the song, one of his big hits that my friends, the people up here. And he was just singing, uh, it was his love for me, you know, nice and easy. And I said, sing it, I said, Billy Eckstein, I think that was his name, yes. Sing it like Billy Eckstein. And so he, it was his love for me. And he sang just like Billy, <laughs> only better because he had a better voice. And so I said, okay, tonight you're going to sing it like in the, in the tent. Oh, no. I said, if you don't, I'm going to stop playing the piano. I'm going to turn around and say, what's the matter, Bob? Have you forgotten how we practice it? And he said, you wouldn't. I said, try me. <laughs> So that night, uh, he announced the song, and I said, I mean it, Bob. And he sang it, and that was the beginning. When somebody heard him, they were part of RCA Victor and, and you know, Oral Roberts and all. Bob had his totally unique, gorgeous voice, and, and uh, such a nice guy. Part, uh, that's the history of the world, part one. Now let's we can go to part two. <laughs> <laughs> so, Bob, tell me about your connection with the Thomas organ. All right. I, now, Lauren Whitney was one of the world's greatest pipe organists. And he had a studio in Glendale, and we knew him. And uh, so, first of all, my wife wanted to do a recording of a, a message she had called Faith Secrets. And uh, it was not, not a sermon, it was a talk. And so we, she called uh, Lauren and went over and recorded it. And it's still, it's still around today. And, and it's, it's many people, it's the greatest ex, uh, exposition of faith they've ever heard. But... So then we decided we would, uh, the Thomas Trianon came out and I'd heard it or seen it, whatever. And it might've been on the, cause I know that's what they used for years on the Lawrence Wilk show. And, but anyway, so I, I said, I want to record on that. So we talked to Lauren and he said, oh, I know Mr. Thomas. So he called Mr. Thomas of the Thomas organ and Trianon and all the different ones. Uh, there were two major ones and they used the, the one is three keyboards and the other one is two. And uh, they use both of those on Lawrence Wilk. You'll see Bob uh, playing them. And uh, anyway, so uh, he called Mr. Thomas and said, oh, yeah, OK, I'll bring over a Trianon. And then he brought two speakers about six feet tall, each exterior speakers, which, of course, gave it some such a superior tone to this one speaker that would be built into the organ. And so he set everything up and then he was there every day. He and my wife were there every day that I recorded this album on the Thomas Trianon. And so then he said, Bob, uh, we have them. We have our Thomas now around the world in many countries, any place that you want an organ you get in touch with me and we'll see that you have an organ wherever you are in the world so for several years uh he provided i'd contact him i'm in france or i'm in germany whatever i went to italy and i was in about 60 cities all over italy and with the thomas Trion. so and there were, and he provided a large banner like to hang on the one end of it and i always put it sideways so i could look out at the audience not my back or my face and they could see this banner thomas and he said when i left there he sold i think it was eight or ten train car loads of the smaller thomas organs and he said he had never sold that many organs <laughs> in one country in such a short time in his life what are some of the highlights that you remember about playing the organ? Any particular concert come to mind? Oh, well, I know I, I, I just, I, I've seldom 
gave a concert. When I go into communist countries, we would advertise it as gospel, charismatic gospel music concert. And so to hopefully confuse them because you weren't supposed to preach. And, and uh, I, was, I was in Poland in 1984 in six cities in the largest auditoriums. And they were jammed uh, to the rafters with sitting on the steps and standing all around the walls. And we had 10,000 converts in six weeks. So it, it was a totally amazing. The way we knew how many, because I have a little book called The New You. And uh, so we wrote to the government of Poland and about how we would distribute these free. And they said, well, you can't bring anything in, but, but uh, you, you can get it interpreted in the Polish and you can have them printed. We let you print 10,000 here in Poland, which we did. Well, they were not for sale. And the only way you could get one was to go to the back of the pasture or counselors at all. And uh, I never called anybody forward. I let them raise their hand and pray for them. They wanted to receive Christ. And so we said, now have this little book. And if you would like a free copy, why you go and tell them, those in the back, that you've given your life to Christ and you'd like this little book by Bob Waters to help you in a new life as a Christian. That's the only way they could get one. No, you couldn't buy one at any price and you couldn't get one unless you make a confession of Christ. Well, we gave out 9,999 books and I have the 10,000th one in my office. And then I got a call later from Poland about six months later. They said, Bob, we need 20,000 more books. And so I sent the money and they got and printed 20,000 more. So, uh, but it was, it was a one-off. I was invited to come back, but I didn't feel that I felt it was time and place and it was perfect and I wasn't going to, you know, you can't improve on perfection. So I didn't ever, I never went back. <laughs> I wonder, did you have any experiences performing behind the Iron Curtain? Well, of course, Poland was under Russia. Every city was loaded with Russian tanks. In fact, I was almost killed by a tank because a bitter coke had come in and I went out and bought a very cheap, uh, but it had real fur lined. Uh, just a canvas uh, exterior, but I was freezing because I was not ready for this drop into the 20s. And I got a, a earmuffs, a, a cap for, for with earmuffs and uh, gloves and wrapped up because it was terribly cold. And I'm walking across the street and I look and there are people waving at me and, and hollering. I couldn't hear them because I had a cap over my ears. And they pointed out to look to the left and here was a Russian tank barreling down right for me and because there were no civil rights so he could have run over me and nobody would ever have paid they probably wouldn't even know who, know who was crushed under there but uh, so i just leaped out of the way and because of those people getting my attention i would have been killed and uh, that that was poland it was completely dominated by the russians and they were afraid of another uprising like czechoslovakia and, and so the russians were the tanks were not there to protect the Poles from outside. They were there to protect the Russians and the Poles. And so, so but I was, and then I've, I've been in several other uh, communists. I never got to Russia. I only have gone where I was invited. And I have had no invitation to Russia, so I didn't go. And I was invited by all the churches of Poland, all the Protestant churches to come in and have these crusades and these big auditoriums. And it was beyond my wildest dreams. And, and it was just wonderful. But so that's, you know, and those were, those were go charismatic gospel music concerts. That's all we have. <laughs> so, uh, but, but the, and, I, and we I only had the auditorium for an hour. We had to be in and out. And uh, then they, we could stay in, be outside in the vestibule for a while. And that's where the people would go and get their books for free and so on. But uh, 
so when you have when you're advertising music, you got to better you better play the music. So I, I and we also had a, a quartet from the Philharmonic Orchestra of playing two violins, a cello, and a bass, and they made beautiful music. And they traveled with me and sang and, and played the music in every crusade in six cities. And so it was really a, a lot of music. And then I preached a seven-minute sermon, which took another seven minutes to interpret. And, and so, so I, I knew for I knew always that it's only because of the magnificent sermon that these things happened. <laughs> what are you gonna say in seven minutes? It was just the Lord's doing, and and I made a simple message and and uh, they uh, received and they enjoyed the music and they received it. And then 10 churches were built in Poland this, uh, from the converts. Because they, their largest church, Protestant, was 150 people in one city. And then, of course, you know, Poland is, is, is Catholic. And when our, 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 I think the only pope outside Italy was from Poland. But uh, so they, they came and they received and they built 10 churches. The smallest one in Cheshire seats seated 400 people. And another one seat 800, and in Katowice, which was my first crusade in the big auditorium, it was the home of the of the 100-piece uh, Philharmonic Orchestra. That's the theater that the Beatles and everybody who, who was anybody go to Poland. That's where they went to the uh, the wonderful Philharmonic Hall and uh, in Katowice. And their church seat that they built from the converts because they didn't have any money and had these little tiny churches. The church in Katowice was in a converted automobile mechanics garage. They cleaned it out and put in about 90 chairs jammed in. And that was it. And that their new church seated 2,500 people. So this was a, just a work of God. I sit around and just, just looked amazed, you know. And of course, I knew it was all because of my magnificent sermons. <laughs> so, but it was interesting. I'd say never a dull moment. Oh, boy. Bob, I wonder, do you have any particularly favorite hymns? Well, my favorite song, I want to be sung at my funeral, which may not be far off, <laughs> is uh, uh, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. As we continue with our podcast, we're going to next hear from Kurt Kaiser. Oh, speaking of Kurt Kaiser, I, do, I have a question or two about him, actually. Okay. Um. He explains how he came to Word, and I would just like maybe an explanation for everyone, but also for myself. Um, what exactly is Word, and um, who, like, what was their objective? Like, what did they do? Very, very good question. Yeah, he joined um, the music publishing company that was also a record label called Word, Inc., back in 1959, and their focus was... Christian music. That was what they wanted to record and publish. They did a few things outside of that, um, but they really did focus on Christian music for their entire run. And what's interesting to me is that um, Kurt was there during this big transition we talked about a little bit earlier, which was the growth of contemporary worship music. Before, they were releasing albums and printing out songbooks of hymnals and old-fashioned songs. Um, and he really was there at that moment where churches were uh, letting younger people be the 
choir directors, letting people uh, of younger ages uh, be involved with the worship service portion, bringing other instruments into the church for the first time, like guitars and drums, not just piano and organ. So this was a big change, and Kurt was right there for it. And one of the things that I think is his claim to fame is that he latched onto it right away, where others were like, well, I don't know, that's not the way we used to do it. He was like, wait, if young people can relate to this, if we sing it this way, let's sing it this way and have them more involved with coming to church. And maybe they'll want to come to church and, you know, perpetuate that experience for them. So uh, I hope I answered your question, but that was my take on the importance of why he was at Word. Word was started by Gerald McCracken when he was a graduate student at Baylor University. And I think he was in religion, actually, a religion major. And he started this because he had a thing called the Game of Life. And he was doing it on weekends, everywhere they wanted him to come and speak and do this Game of Life thing, which basically had, it was like a football game, it had the forces of good against the forces of evil. And so people would say to him, he's getting so many invitations, you're gonna have to either record it or forget it. So he decided to record it while he was just getting inundated by people wanting to buy that recording, you know? He would sell them out of the trunk of his car. And he started it here in Waco? He started it here in Waco, and I came down here about eight years after it started. I think it was begun in 1951. I came down in 1959, something like that. I came down in 59, yeah. And what was it like working with him? Oh, it was wonderful, because he was the kind of person who would, who would allow me freedom to do whatever I wanted. And he would say, I feel that whatever is good for you is good for word, which is nice. So I got a lot of invitations to go out and play for this, doing that. And um, at the same time, I was employed at Word. Word built that place for me in my backyard. It's a really nice studio, you know? It's got all the stuff in it. And uh, yeah, I, I, I really liked it, but, but it was because he allowed me the freedom to do what I wanted to do. Hmm. Yeah. It's a neat opportunity. <laughs> and the opportunity. And lots of opportunities came. I worked with a lot of really talented people way back then who were not in music, but who were speakers or who were authors or who were whatever. Hmm. Word was a recording company first. For years, and then um, Fred Bach, whom you may know, Fred Bach, who since died, came to town. He's about my age, and we were good friends. And we started the publishing side of it because of Fred, and then it came became Word Music. But until that time, it was only just Word Records. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah. How interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you see, uh, having been born up in Chicago, I knew a lot of the music scene in the Christian world up in that part of the country. And because of that, um, I brought all of that down with me, unbeknownst to the fact that word at that time was rather parochial, I think, and was just doing stuff with artists around here. Well, I, 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 
I brought to them all kinds of new people who were, I thought, really good musicians. Bill Pierce, wonderful trombonist. And uh, all kinds of other, Melody Four Quartet, great quartet. And all kinds of singers. And we recorded the, we recorded a, a group called uh, what was it? Haven of Rest Quartet out in California. So we had all these different kinds of things going. And, it, and word at that time was really, really roaring, really going. And it's because I was out doing stuff and seeing people, you know. So that was interesting. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> Expanding it. How did you, what did you see as some of the big milestones for Word as far as its growth? Well, um, then of course after the record, the music, uh, the music publishing, and then the book publishing, Word book publishing, and we had a, a, a book that sold very, very well called The Taste of New Wine by Keith Miller, who has since died. And he's he had written several books since then, but that was the sort of like landmark, you know, in the book publishing area. Um, we bought the Road Heaver Company, which company owns I'd Rather Have Jesus. No, no, uh, In the Garden and The Old Rugged Cross and a couple of other, and um, and then we incorporated Bev's things in into the Road Heaver Company all under Chancel Music, C-H-A-N-C-E-L, Music. And um, it's interesting to me, I'd never known this, or I guess I'd never thought about it, but Rodeheaver, although they knew, owned hundreds of songs, the only songs that really mattered were In the Garden, Beyond the Sunset, and The Old Rugged Cross. All the rest of those things, although they were nice, Nobody did. And so we bought, we bought Rodeheaver Company, which immediately gave us a big time impetus, you know, to grow. And at the same time, we would, uh, we would, uh, I would work with, uh, there's a really wonderful artist by the name of Ken Miedema, who is blind, totally blind, but is very, very creative. Can play the piano like mad and sings really well. And, it was fun to, to introduce, get him going, get him started. And there used to be a girl by the name of Evie Tornquist, who was in Florida now, and she was just a little teenager when I first met her. And uh, she, 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 she is something, she was something. We sang for the, she sang, and I accompanied her for the presidential prayer breakfast in Washington, D.C. And uh, yeah, the president just, at first, he had, and she had him right in his hand, in her hand. I said, just the president. <laughs> That's kind of fun. I bet. Yeah. So, yeah, lots of really interesting things. So we just, exponentially, we just kind of grew. And I think the word of mouth thing was a good thing. We started record clubs, and we book clubs, and all kinds of things. We did a lot of publishing. In those days, it was whenever we came out with something new, and and we had uh, we had uh, what do you call music workshops all around the country. Whenever we had a workshop with new things of ours, 
we'd, we'd show them to people, ministers of music, and they would come from all over to hear this stuff. Anita Kerr was one of our people. And uh, yeah, it was really it was a lot of fun. All right, folks, you are listening to the Music History Project and our first part of a two-part series on gospel music. And Jonah's beside me, and he was the one who reviewed this interview we're listening to now with Kurt Kaiser. And I'm just kind of wondering, what were some of your takeaways of his contributions? Um, he was just very aware and intentional in this de- the decisions he made in the church. He implemented silence into his church service because he just wanted to be very aware with uh everyone's individual time with God. And so he was also very aware and intentional when it came to engaging younger younger people and younger individuals of the church um, in worship and in praising the Lord. So while we're speaking of uh, Kirk Kaiser, I, I wanted to mention that um, he did an amazing job in the early days. We were talking about hymns and so on with um, George Beverly Shea, um, Burl Ives, Ethel Waters, um, people like Tennessee Ernie Ford. He was really good at arranging and producing all of those artists and their religious albums in the 50s and 60s. And then in the 70s, he started um, writing more. And among the songs he wrote was Oh How He Loves You and Pass It On. And to me, Pass It On was an instrumental, very, very critical song when it came to contemporary uh, Christian music in the early 70s because it was relatable to younger people. It wasn't these songs that have those and thous and these and them that are harder to relate to. It had friendly things, um, ideas like um, his song Pass It On. It only takes a spark to get a fire going. But soon all those around will warm up and it's glowing. Uh, you know, that's, oh, it's, it's kind of sing-songy. It's a little bit maybe simplistic. But there's a message there and it's uh, relatable. And I think that was a very important contribution that he made. So I don't want to spoil all of it. I know he's going to talk a little bit about it in his interview. So let's now just go back to um, 2014, Waco, Texas, and Kurt Kaiser. People want to come to church not to be entertained necessarily, but they, there are long periods of quiet in our church, which is the way I was raised. But I find that young people especially, uh, PhD students at Baylor University, they don't want things that are just trendy now, they want things that go back hundreds of years in theology and thinking and uh, that's kind of an interesting idea. So we, we give that to them. And we build into our service silence. Maybe a minute of silence, that's a long time, or two minutes, of, that's really a lot of long time to be very quiet. Don't say anything, there's no piano, there's no nothing. It's just quiet. And people can't handle that quiet for a long time. And then they come to the point where they, you know, relax in it. It's nice. And so that's, that's basically what we're, we do. And it has been, as I say, the most refreshing part of my life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What a nice thing to be able to say. Yeah. 
It really is nice. With all the, there's a lot of, uh, you know, drums and guitars and none of that. We don't have that. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> You've been to plenty of services that do have that. I'm sure you have. Yeah. I'm sure you have. And what? I think it's interesting because you think about the the evolution, if you will, of, of contemporary Christian music and there's this great desire to include young people always. And so, oh, well, young people like drums. Let's bring in the dr young people like electric guitar. Let's bring in. And I always thought it was interesting that the generation after generation before that, when I was a kid, I liked the hymns. I liked what they liked. It wasn't that they were catering to me. I was catering to them. them. Yeah. And I just think... Not that one is worse or better yeah, right, than right. the other. I just think it's kind of interesting that yeah. it went on that way for many, many decades, if not hundreds of years, and then sort of just recently seems to have... Gone the other direction. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know why. Yeah, I think you're right, but I don't know why that is. Uh, a week from tomorrow, I have this violist playing. She's coming to the... She's been to the house twice now, and she's coming in one more time. We're going to do what wondrous love is this. Well, that's an old-timey, modal kind of a piece, you know. And uh, we talk about how to refine that and make it really wonderful so that the experience is, is totally captivating as opposed to what wonder. No, no, no. That's kind of a nice experience. But it's counter to what's going on these days, I think. Uh, where people, I don't know, people, I don't think they want to be entertained at, when they go to church, but they are. And you're right, I think the, the church feels an obligation to entertain those people. But that's not why you go to worship. Mm. You know? Certainly shouldn't think. be. No. I think, uh, <laughs> missing the point. That's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think that there have been some effective worshiping in those settings, you know, with the drums and the guitar. I mm -hmm. think that they can do that. Mm -hmm. It's just interesting to me that um, it's just become the only way. Yeah. And so that they don't use the organ at all at, at, anymore in a lot of those places. When we did Tell It Like It Is, early 70s, 70, 69, 70, 71, in there somewhere. People would, we, because we, we felt an obligation to get kids to going into church again. That's the reason we wrote this thing. But we didn't do any, we intentionally did not want to do any damage to anything, to, to doctrines that we hold dear. But we wanted to say things the way kids would say them. Musically and textually. So I remember, always remember, there was a woman in San Antonio who came to me, grabbed me by a little lapel of my jacket, and she said, what are you going to do next for my son? Said, what are you talking about? And she said, well, he's playing drums in there tonight. She said, I could never get him to go to church. 
Now you've written something for him to play. What are you going to do? What will you do next? You know. So that that was a, really an indictment to me. But I don't know that I've done anything special for him through these years. I've incorporated drums a lot, you know, in my stuff. Although that's not really where my heart is, you know what I mean? But I've done it just because that was the thing to do, you know? But you're right. I, uh, so I was part of introducing that whole thing where everybody gets involved. Mm -hmm. In my opinion, there weren't a whole lot of songs that you could own that were new to your generation in church. Right. You know, there were all, they all went way back. Oh, yeah. As far as my church went. That's you exactly know, right. Were, you know, and we didn't sing a whole lot of gospel music, which, you know, the Thomas A. Dorsey's and right. stuff were writing in the, we were doing this stuff even further back than right. that. Right, right. So when um, Pass It On came along, here was something for a whole new generation or two or three to latch on to yeah, and yeah. say, I can relate to this. Right, exactly, know? yeah. And when you're going camping, how many of us went camping and said, there's the mountain, let's go climb it. And when you're on top of it, you can shout it from the mountain. Yeah, right, you know, exactly. You, yeah. you know, and you, you, yeah. there's a lyric to go along yeah, with. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, know, yeah, yeah, that yeah, you yeah. can own an experience. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think that's, that's exactly fantastic. right, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a funny thing how, it's sort of cyclical really, isn't it, the music? And I don't know what that is now. I don't know if there are one or two songs, or maybe it's just the whole concept of the worship song. I don't, I don't know. But I do see young people being involved with church, and I think that's fantastic. Sure. You know, I think that that's sure. a very, very important thing. I just don't... You, you, you can't pinpoint it like you could before. At the, least I can't. The only thing that's worrisome to me is um, I remember doing a, a hymnody something at Lady Lodge not long ago, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, down in Lakey, Texas, at uh, Howard Butts HEB place. And uh, I, so I was leading this thing on hymnody, and um, there was an Episcopalian lady and a wonderful singer who teaches a better, good, good friend of mine. And so I said now to the Episcopal lady, who was not at all, I mean, she looked great and she, but she did one of the contemporaries, said, I don't want you to sing it, but I want you to say the lyrics. And I told Jack the same thing. I said, Jack, please say the lyrics too. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's love, Savior's blood? And he did. And then I said to this lady, now would you please do the first stanza of your... And she said, Alleluia, 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 and she quit. I said, no, that's just half of it. Do the other half. Alleluia, 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 Alleluia. And I said to Jack, now please do the second set of Anne Kennedy, and he did. And I said, now please do the second set of yours. I will praise him, I will praise him, I will praise him, I will praise him. And I said, I, I don't know, but I think you can live your life by this. But you can't live your life by, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. 
And uh, that to me is the difference between contemporary music and church music and the old timey things that really are stand the test of time. <clears throat> I'm not putting down hallelujah. It has a place, but you can't, in those days, you, you can't live your life by that. It's too f sort of frothy, you know? I've always loved classical music, and I love jazz, and I think maybe I've incorporated a little of, of both of those things in who I am and in my writing. And so other people sing those things that are a part of who I am, you know? Whether it's good or bad, that's who I am. <laughs> yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Well, what, I, what I've admired about your music and, and that of so many of your contemporaries has been a, a thing that uh, Jerome Kern, the pop music guy yes. way back, yeah. used to say about Irving Berlin. He said he was blessed with every man's ear and heart. Wow. And I thought that was such a great line. And to me, when I'm singing a song or hearing a song and it provokes something in me to say, wow, that's, I mean, I can totally relate to that. But more than just relating, like, gosh, I wish I said that. You know, yeah. I, I oh, wish yeah, yeah. I thought of that. Yeah, 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 that's yeah. That's exactly how I feel. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, that to me is so precious. You it know, really is those. nice. And uh, the, the, that line that you just now said is very, very good. My goodness, I wish I'd thought of that one. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I keep thinking, like the Oh, I Loves You and Me thing came very, very quickly for me. Maybe and music came simultaneously with the lyrics, which is quite unusual, I think. And um, I wish I could have another 15 minutes like that, but they're not going to happen. It hasn't happened. I can try, but it doesn't work. But that one worked. <laughs> all the, all the uh, intervals were right, everything is right, and the message is right. Yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun to see how that works. Yeah. Yeah. Next, we're going to hear from Karen Lafferty, who we were fortunate enough to interview at Candyman Strings and Things in Santa Fe, New Mexico, April 2022. Karen is an author, educator, teacher, singer, songwriter. Jonah, what were your thoughts on listening to Karen's interview? She is such a relatable person as she speaks from the heart and talks about how music to her um, is basically just her emotions and what she truly feels she needs to say, especially with her relationship with the Lord. And that's definitely seen so well in her, one of her most famous songs, Seek Ye First, which she sang in the Vatican. Mm. And um, I think as her, uh, as she got older, she used what she learned to teach not only music, but also about the Lord. And so she combined her two, uh, the two most important things in her life. So let's hear from Karen Lafferty. I, even though I studied seriously, you know, opera and choir directing and all that, I was always a pop folk, you know, light rock kind of singer. Yeah. And so I decided after I graduated from co college, I thought, you know, I've been in school all my life. I don't want to just go right back into teaching or something. So I decided to take a couple of years to see if I could make it in the entertainment industry. 
And so I entertained locally and um, resort areas, ended up in New Orleans, Louisiana, uh, entertaining down there. And as I did that, I was, um, I was always in the music and church music was part of my music. And I was a believer basically, but I was kind of spiraling down on my personal life. <laughs> and uh, just a friend of mine came that had a strong relationship with God. And it was at that time that I decided, you know, I'm gonna focus a little bit more on just trying to be a positive influence in people's lives instead of just focusing on my career. And um, eventually I ended up in California as an entertainer. And um, so as I did that, I kind of ended up right in the middle of the Jesus movement. And there was a lot of people like myself that have been entertainers and um, <clears throat> different ones, some good friends of mine uh, that uh, I'm sure you heard, the, the Safaris, uh, Bob and Jean Berryhill, they wrote Wipeout, you know, uh, they kind of, that happened to them a bit. And there were, there were others, uh, Chuck Gerard, who, um, Let's see, what all was he? I don't even remember all the groups they were in, but Phil Kagey, of course. There were others of us that were finding just a deeper faith. And so we started singing about our faith and kind of the um, record companies, Maranatha Music, Word Records, Sparrow, different ones started uh, coming forth. And so um, we started recording more and touring and all of that, so it's just, I kind of was led into it, but uh, that, that's kind of how my career developed. Um, <laughs> I laughed because the main thing about uh, changing from a nightclub entertainer, uh, where I was, I was making in the 70s about $500 a week, I thought that was pretty good. And um, when I went over into uh, full-time Christian music, the main uh, difference was my salary went way down. <laughs> And in fact, it's, uh, I don't know if we, I have one famous song. It's called Seek Ye First. It's just a scripture song. It was a very simple, simple song. But I got down to the point where I was just um, out of money. Couldn't even pay my $90 a month rent. Couldn't pay my $50 car payment. You know, I was teaching music lessons, but I was down. <laughs> and so I thought, okay, you don't shake your fist to God or get mad at him, you go to him. So I ended up uh, going to church that night and they were teaching out of Matthew where Jesus was uh, giving the, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And as I, um, as it got to the part where Jesus said, uh, consider the lilies of the field and the birds of the air, they don't sow or reap, but God takes care of them. So how much more does he care for you? So seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And um, I thought, okay, all these things is my rent and my car payment, right, God? And so I um, went home and uh, my rent wasn't paid, but my joy was back. <laughs> and I um, ended up just picking up my guitar. In fact, I first wrote that little tune on my guitar. I was just kind of thinking about it and I wrote the little tune. And then I just put it to music, put a little hallelujah discount part to it, and um, taught it at church the next week, and everybody remembered it, because it was so easy. And right after that, Maranatha Music, which had become a record company, we were just a fellowship at first, but we had become a record company, and um, 
we decided um, instead of just doing these compilation albums and story songs and all that, let's put all of our praise music together into one album. Really hadn't been done very much before. <laughs> and so <clears throat> we did that and Seeky First was on it. And I think that's what probably took it really around the world. Them and the Catholics. Catholics pick it up and I've sung it at the Vatican. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, and uh, so that was uh, a neat experience. I was touring with my college choir and we did that song and, and the cantor there, he said, oh yes, I know this song, we do it all the time. I thought, oh, they do it all the time at the Vatican, probably this song's gonna, and that's, that's the funny part of this. I wrote that song about, out of this big financial crisis in my life. And you know, over the 40 years it's been out, um, that's uh, probably the royalties from that song has uh, been over half of my income through the years. So I think God had a chuckle on that one. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. amazing. So how did you connect with the Maranatha folks? With Maranatha? It really was, I was going to live with my, uh, at least temporarily, with my aunt and uncle who lived in Costa Mesa, California, when I was going out to entertain. And of course, at first, in, in, uh, in my book, I have these funny stories about different interviews I had. Uh, had one with a, a guy named Lindy Blasky, who I found out later was uh, originally from uh, New Mexico. And I was in Hollywood, though, and I went up to his, his uh, uh, office, and I about to knock on the door, I said, it said Motown Records. I said, you know, I'm not really Motown material. <laughs> I thought, why do they want to? So I went in, and he um, interviewed me, and he said, oh, I'm leaving this company, and I, I'm going to start another company. Uh, and so we talked, and he wanted to a uh, couple of my songs, and he said, uh, <clears throat> I said, so what is your new company called? And he said, oh, well, it's Playboy Publishing. I said, he said, oh, it's just owned by uh, Hugh Hefner, and everything he does is called Playboy. And he knew I was <laughs> a Christian at that point. I thought, hmm. Well, my songs, nobody picked them up, so I didn't go very far there. But I ended up, you know, doing the entertainment thing, but I lived in... Costa Mesa, and about five minutes away was kind of the center of the Jesus movement called Calvary Chapel. And my cousins were going over there. I just went with them. It was kind of a God setup, I think. Mm. That's really <laughs> so, amazing. So, yeah. And how do you describe uh, the Jesus movement? What was that, and how did that yeah. pertain to contemporary Christian music? You know, um, my generation, uh, there, the, the 60s, you know, we were all about, uh, well, so many people were uh, protesting the Vietnam War, and uh, of course civil rights was very big, and so we were, you know, really searching for truth, and I think students are like this, you know, young people are just like, we want true truth, you know, we don't, we don't want this hypocrisy or anything, and, and so I think because I mean, you know, even the Beatles, you know, who were kind of leading out on a lot of things, I mean, they were delving in, in different spiritual things, you know. And I think just at that time, there were so many people that, uh, you know, look at Jesus, he kind of looked like a hippie anyway, all the pictures you see. And, you know, I don't know, there was just an identification with the um, truths that Jesus said. And then when there was certain churches, which Calvary Chapel did, even though they were a little conservative church, 
uh, when the young people started coming in with their long hair and, and uh, hippie ways and no shoes and all that, um, some people in the church went like, wait a minute, we don't know. But Chuck Smith, the pastor, said, you know, we have new carpet, but if the new carpet can't, uh, either the kids go or the carpet goes. Well, the carpet goes, because we're going to have the kids. But it was just a searching for truth, I think. That, um, and then there was a acceptance of who we were and the music that we liked to do. And I think that, because the music was a real key part of that whole Jesus movement thing. Mm -hmm. But it was true conversions uh, with many people of just, you know, these drugs aren't working for me. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think it was just that. And, you know, as I travel around the world, because I've been a missionary for quite a few years, I hear about the same kind of stories happening in South Africa or Australia or, you know, different places in Europe. And I think it was just a Holy Spirit thing, like, okay, it's time to communicate to these young people. And so, like so many revivals, it was a youth movement, mm. in a sense. Yeah. Well, that first album um, that uh, Siki first was on, I think, mm -hmm. really helped change things as far as contemporary music. Is that your thought, too? You know, it did, you know, it was all happening. So many moving parts to it that were working all at the same time. And it was really key because... We had cassettes at that time, you know, and uh, instead of just records or most people wouldn't even know what eight tracks are these days. That, that was a short-lived thing, but um, although some of my old albums are in eight tracks. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, in cassettes, you know, you could put it in your car and all that, and people love that, like, wow, I can listen to this music that I can sing along with. Mm. So it engaged people. It wasn't just an audience thing. It wasn't just, I'm going to watch this. It was, I'm going to be part of this. And of course, that's what worship is. And, and so I think people were just longing for something like that, not just be a spectator, but uh, being involved in the whole thing. So it really was, uh, I mean, it, people started picking up on it right away. I mean, every... Uh, Christian record company there was. I mentioned several, Word and Sparrow and uh, others, and then then all these companies started coming that were focusing just on worship. And so even today, it's, it's still huge, you know, and big. Um, I think we always have to be careful. We When you get in, you know, I, I teach music schools and things like that now, and there's always that practical part, you know, if you're in a ministry like I've done, well, there's, there is a spiritual part, you know, you need, but there's a musical part, and, and there's the business part. I said, all of those are important, and you, you need to pay attention to them. So um, there's, uh, you know, and of course, NAM has been more the uh, musical part, I would say, and the business part, of course. And <clears throat> I would emphasize to people, you know, you, you need to learn this music publishing. You need to learn that. It's supported me, you know, in my life. And if you are a good songwriter, we need those good songs. I always feel like songwriters are there to write the hearts of everybody. You know, there's a song you'll hear and like, that is my song, you know. And so we need to do that and pay attention to that. So, um, yeah, it's grown up in a industry kind of way too but you know that's what we need to do i think the key to it is just not because uh, i my own story is 
I was, the identity was I was a musician. You know, but I found that that didn't really meet the deep needs of my life. I love being a musician, I have a freedom to do music or not to do music. I think I'm more of a concert promoter today <laughs> than I am a musician, but, uh, I, but I just love helping make good music for people to listen to. Very well yeah. said, that's really <laughs> neat. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your teaching experiences and what it's like to bring music to students. Yeah, I've always felt <clears throat> very strongly about both aspects. I'm, I'm grateful that I had opportunities just taking privately and being in all kinds of bands, orchestras, and choirs growing up, but, and then having a college degree in it. So I've always been um, big on, we, I'm, I've been part of a uh, mission group called Youth with a Mission. And even though old people like me are in Youth with a Mission, but our focus is to focus on the young people and give them opportunity. And we eventually formed a university which is global. We're not just in one location. We are in about 800 locations. And it's called University of the Nations. So I got in there teaching, um, um, well, missions and music. And it was always both. We, we wanted to teach them how to communicate and cross-cultural settings and mm. all of that. But we wanted them to be good at what they do. You know, and so we, we tried to teach them everything from songwriting to um, a lot of character things, of course, and, and being in a ministry. But um, still, like I said, the, the business part was always a part. And so I think teaching by example is always the best way to do. So one of the best ways I love to teach, we would have a kind of a classroom phase of it, but then we would have a touring phase. And that's where people really learn. You know, when you run into those hard situations, what's your attitude going to be, you know? And um, when things aren't quite like you had written in your agreement, how they were supposed to be, what's going to be your attitude towards that? And mm -hmm. are we going to be able to still kind of minister or, you know, uh, have a good attitude towards it? And um, so anyway, that was the real teaching part. And I, I feel strongly that we need to teach by example and pay attention to the individual more than the project, yeah. you know, <laughs> so. Yeah, very, very true. I think from, um, from your perspective, I think it would be interesting to hear a little <coughs> bit about how you see the role music plays in church. Mm. Well, um, from the beginning, I think, um, as I always, one of the first things I did, and I have our students do, is look and what the, see what the Bible says about music. And it's huge. I mean, we have the Psalms, you know, which are all songs, you know, that uh, David, King David, the, one of the most famous uh, kings there was, even Solomon, his son, uh, were musicians. You know, David, the first time we really see music like kind of ministering to someone, uh, David didn't even sing, he played his harp for Saul. And so um, it, there's just so many as aspects to it. Um, I'm, Martin Luther is one of my heroes because the church got to the point where it was just the clergy that was singing and everybody was listening. But Martin Luther is the one who um, got the congregation singing. And that was, that was a major thing. And of course, he was the first one that uh, got the Bible from Latin 
into the language of the people, into German, so that they could understand it. And all those things were huge, you know. And so um, now, you know, we have, I travel internationally a lot, and um, we definitely have our own cultures, you know. Of course, I love going to black churches where they have their own culture the way they sing. And I always say, God, when, when I get to heaven, can I sing black? You know, <laughs> I just love the way they sing, and I'd love to be able to do that, but I like listening to them. But there's that culture when you go to um, India, you know, and different places, even though Western missionaries have been those places and they've learned a lot of what we do, I love, in fact, in past years, I've been working a lot in indigenous um, uh, ways of worship, you know, to, to see the uh, Hawaiians do the hula to God and sing their songs. When you, when you hear the Native Americans play their, their flute, you know, uh, in worship, it's beautiful. So to me, it just goes along with it. It's a way that helps us express our emotion. Music without emotion is pretty boring. You know, it's, it's one of my goals as a teacher is to get them, you know, out of, you know, studying classical music with the rises and the falls and the dynamics it has, we have to bring that into all music. And when it can sing the heart and sing the emotions of the heart, then, then that's the way that we can, uh, you know, sing to God like that. We can communicate with each other like that. But so I, I think music plays a, a multi role and, and that we can involve. Last night I was at our choir practice. We're practicing uh, songs for Easter. And, and the fellowship that I have with these people I'm singing with is just so much fun. You know, so it, it brings us together, the music does, but then it also is something that we will give a presentation that um, can, that just the people that listen to it can, it can be their song even though they're not singing it. It's still, you know, music just brings out, gives us a place to express that emotion that that's part of who we are. We're all emotional people. Mm -hmm. And it's gotta be focused, I think, the right way. And so music helps us focus. I'm still a mentor in many ways. I've, as I've done my schools over the years, I've connected with uh, musicians in India and Romania and Africa and all that. And I still, I'm sort of the mom to those kind of people. And, and some of them are doing fantastic works. They've grown up. I mean, one of my pride and joys is an Indian guy that, in fact, the way I met him, I was doing a short little tour in India and I was at a Youth of the Mission school and uh, they had a little, I was doing a concert for them. All they had was one microphone and a little speaker and no microphone stands, so this guy was my microphone stand, you know, so. And his name was Benny Prasad, and he said, I love that one song, can you tell me how to play that? And I said, well, I leave right after breakfast. He said, okay, before breakfast, we'll get together. <laughs> but we did, and I thought, wow, this kid's got some talent. And so I said, what are you doing after your school? He said, why don't you come to Santa Fe and go through our music school? So he did, and you know what? He couldn't sing, he was pretty, but, he practiced and practiced, and he has Guinness World Book of Records today of going to every country in the world, and he gave concerts in most of those places. Wow. And so uh, he, he's a real leader, you know, this is, I met him 30 years ago now, and he's 
now uh, you know, a mature man and, and has a wonderful ministry in Bangalore, India, and is still traveling worldwide. You know, I think he's much more famous than I'll ever be. You know, it's, it's just like he's, he's done fantastic things. So that's sort of, I'm a single person, so I, um, I have my spiritual children, you know, like that. And I still keep contact with them, but I like um, kind of getting the next generation out there, mm -hmm. fanning their flame, you know, and, and I still do that when I can. All right, this concludes our podcast, part one of gospel music here on the Music History Project. And I just want to say that uh, my final thought for this podcast is how grateful I am to Jonah for taking the time to tease out some of these important segments of these otherwise long interviews just to get to the nuggets of what we were hoping to accomplish today. And that is an inside look on the growth and development of contemporary Christian music. Thank you so much, Jonah. Of course. Well, I sure learned a lot. Yeah, and I think uh, we might want to start singing now. Oh, yeah. What song should we start? Uh, well, how about you start? <laughs> <laughs> Good try, Alex. I feel like I need to start a playlist of just all the songs from each person, just so I, you know, I, I, I'm not done with hearing from them. So also tune in next month as we will be continuing and learning from two more people that um, are part of gospel music. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Blessings. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Dan Del Fiorentino. Suzanne Del Fiorentino. And Alex Rossner. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have ideas for future podcasts or recommendations for interviews for the Oral History Program, please send an email to library at nam.org. That's library at namm.org.